Well, good morning. Happy Easter. Wow. Happy Easter. All right. Here we go. Well, my name is Nathan McCallum. Uh, I'm a journey group leader here at the church, at Journey Church, and I'm just grateful to be able to open God's Word today uh, and just dig into Matthew 28 together. Uh, we've been looking at Matthew, Matthew's account of Holy Week all week, and so I'm looking forward to just getting a chance to do that and finish that up together today, Easter. And I've always loved Easter. Uh, I grew up a preacher's kid. Uh, my dad is pastoring right now, preaching here very soon uh, at his church. And so, like, growing up as a preacher's kid, you know, Easter is basically over after church. Like, we don't have a fancy lunch. Um, and what I remember about Easter predominantly is two things. Number one is that I didn't like my clothes. And I think a lot of you here today are probably feeling the same way. And if that's you and you're an adult, don't look at your wife, okay? Just smile. Be glad to be wearing what you're wearing. Um, I know even my, my five-year-old this morning, we had to have a conversation about this is what you're wearing. Don't argue with mom. Um, I remember not liking the clothes, and I also remember not having a big meal. We would typically grab a bucket of KFC. Don't judge me. Uh, Chick-fil-A is not open on Sunday. And so we would take KFC up on Hot Springs Mountain and we would just kind of, this was back when it was actually spring during spring. Um, and we would enjoy just the warm weather, the beautiful sunshine, the glory of God on Hot Springs Mountain and enjoying KFC, mashed potatoes and gravy. It was good. So great memories my whole life on Easter. But one of the things my dad instilled in our family early on <clears throat> is what is actually called the Paschal Greeting and that is he would basically say to us, Christ is risen. And we would reply, Christ is risen indeed. And what I have later found out is that tradition, that greeting actually began over in Europe. It's more of kind of an Eastern Orthodox, has its roots kind of in the Eastern Orthodox church, the Anglican church. But it has completely burst the banks of those traditions. This week, I was talking to a client at a Bible church of mine. I'm an insurance agent that works at churches. And I was talking to her, and she said it to me, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Uh, my son, who goes to Washington Baptist, said one of his professors, when he left uh, the class on Thursday, said, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. It is a greeting that kind of carries with it this murmur, this excitement. Have you, have you heard? Have you heard Christ is risen? Oh, he's risen indeed, yes. And so today, what I want to do is I just want to teach it to you. I want to practice it together because it is literally what our faith is built on. So I'm going to say Christ is risen. You see it up there. I'm leader. Um, it'd be different. I, I didn't want to put my name. So uh, I'll say Christ is risen. When I say that, you say Christ is risen indeed. Let's try this together. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. I had to do it three times, but y'all are doing awesome. So we're good. So throughout the sermon, you're going to hear a refrain. When you hear me say Christ is risen, don't be shy because I will repeat a point if I have to. And you don't want that. When I say Christ is risen, I want to hear Christ is risen indeed. All right. So we've been looking at the Holy Week under this kind of frame of the King is coming. The King is coming. And it's built out of the gospel narratives and specifically that when Jesus rides in on the cult of a donkey on Palm Sunday, which is what we talked about last week, that he's fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah 9 that says, see 
Oh, Jerusalem, your king comes to you riding on a donkey. We talked about Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday as the triumphant king, as the promised Messiah, and he shows that he has authority over all things, authority over the temple, authority over sickness. We see him coming in as a king, but then we see him on Friday, and it's kind of an odd look for a king. He's not looking all that victorious. But what we said was that while Sunday was the king coming to fulfill the plan and bring the kingdom of God, Friday was the king coming to initiate reconciliation with man to God, that we need to be reconciled to God, and that Jesus, the king, comes and does that. And yet, the good news that we've already sung about is that he didn't stay dead. Today, we finish with the king is coming because we have the resurrection of King Jesus, and so what I want to ask today is, does it really matter that Jesus rose from the dead over 2000 or about 2000 years ago? Does it matter? What, why does Easter matter in 2022? Is it more than just putting on nice clothes? Is it more than getting a family picture, having a nice meal? What does Easter mean for us today? And to, to see that, we also have to understand what it meant for them back then. If you look, actually, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul would say it like this. This is what Easter means. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. You're still in your sins. You're still separated from God if Christ has not been raised. You would still be in sin. Your faith would be in a dead Savior, and it would have no power. Jesus would just be one more dead, wannabe Messiah that had come into Jerusalem and left, uh, or and stayed, but only in a tomb. He would just be one more dead king if he wasn't raised. But he was raised. He was raised. And so let's read Matthew's account of the resurrection. I'm going to read the full account, and then we'll talk about it for a few minutes. Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, and now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. 
When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus, the resurrected King. And there are three effects I want us to see from this passage. Three effects that, that really impacted them, his resurrection impacted them then, and three effects of the way it affects us now. We're gonna see the victory of the risen king. The victory of the risen king. We're going to see the pro that there's a problem though that's actually created by the risen king. And then we're gonna see what I call a rhythm of the kingdom a rhythm of the kingdom. So we have, a, we have a victory, we have a problem, and we have a rhythm. And that's what we're gonna look at through this text. First of all, let's just take a look at the actual victory of the risen king. And the reason I say victory is it sure doesn't seem like on Friday or Saturday that victory was in hand. It seems like it was defeat. It seems as though all hope is lost. And when the women come to the tomb, that's, they're not expecting to find a risen Jesus. That's not their expectation. If you read Mark, Mark 16 says that they came with spices to anoint his body. You don't bring spices to anoint a living body. They expected him dead. The last time we saw them was in Matthew 27, which we read on Good Friday. And it says that they sat opposite the tomb when Joseph of Arimathea puts Jesus already wrapped in clean linen in the tomb, dead, still, buried. That's how they last saw Jesus, and that's how they expected to see Jesus again today. They expected Roman guards. They expected Jesus' corpse. They had fears. They had tears, not, not the band, don't get it wrong, not tears for fears, they had fears. They had tears. They expected a dead king. And that's what we would expect too. My father, who is a, like I said earlier, he's a pastor. He tells a story in a book that he wrote on Psalm 23 of a 90-year-old woman named Gladys, or she was in her 90s. And she was in a coma. And her family, you know, she, she'd, not, she'd been in a coma for a while. Her family told, called my dad, basically said, like, they don't think she's going to make it through the night. Would you come and pray with us? So he comes to the hospital and he, and he gathers around her bed with the family and, and he's, you know, he's not sure what to say. And so he says, you know, in the book, he says, you know, I just kind of thought her and I, she loved Psalm 23. Like when she was healthy and vibrant, it was one of her favorite Psalms. So I just decided I would 
stand over her bed and, and read Psalm 23. And so he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And her eyes pop open and she says, I shall not want. And they're like, whoa, I mean, they're like taking a step back from the, from the bed. She's not dead. And yet, even in a coma, it shocked them. It shocks them because you don't expect that. Can you imagine the fear of coming to the tomb and seeing it empty? Because they showed up and their expectations were not what they thought. They saw things that looked like dead people, but it was the guards. The guards were like dead men. Jesus is gone and an angel is there. The natural result of something like that would be fear. It'd be fear. Fear for them, fear for us. And yet notice in verse six, what does the angel say? Or verse five, do not be afraid for I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. He is not here. He is risen. Seven words that changed the course of history. He is not here. He is risen. Fears all around the guards afraid, the women afraid, but brothers and sisters, for those who come seeking Jesus, the message is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It's the same thing the angel said when they announced his birth. When they come to the shepherds and say, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Messiah, the Lord, the shepherds, do not be afraid. And here, those seeking Jesus, do not be afraid. Jesus was raised. He finished the victory over sin on Friday. He finishes the victory over death on Sunday. King Jesus snatches victory from the haughty jaws of defeat. Friday's death was... Friday death was wagging its head at Jesus, mocking this stricken and afflicted shepherd of God. And yet Sunday, Jesus is risen with the keys, holding the keys of death and hell forever. He's overcome it all by his blood. And the enemies that he overcomes, sin, death, are the same enemies that we have today. It's the same enemies that every single person that's ever been born will have in their life. Sin and death. Sin separates you from God. We were born by nature and by choice enemies of God. We don't wanna submit to God. We don't want him as king of our life. We might want his stuff. We might want his blessing. We might want the kingdom, but we don't want the king. This is the way we're born, and this is our problem with God. And Jesus comes on Good Friday to initiate reconciliation. Those of us separated from God, he covers our sin, and we can belong to God by faith in what Christ has done. He is victorious over sin, and he's victorious over death. Death, the wages of sin is death. And he's victorious over death. Death bats a thousand. We all have to face it. But Jesus, victorious over death, 
Brothers and sisters, what if someone today was, would be able to say to you, I can assuage the guilt and the shame that you feel over your sin. I can take that guilt away. I can take that shame away. I can make you united with the Father. And you know what else I can do? Not only can I take your sin away, I can replace your fear with peace in death. Would you be interested in that person? Would you be interested in that offer? Because that's the offer of Easter. Jesus, victorious over sin, victorious over fear, victorious over death. If you are in this room today and you would not call yourself a follower of Jesus, you've been brought here by your parents, you've been brought here by your spouse, you've invited, been invited by a friend, and this is the first time you've really ever considered if this call of Jesus, if the purpose of Easter actually has impact in your life, let me just tell you that the way you make it realized in your life is simply one thing. It's to repent, to turn away from being king of your life and trust Christ, his work on your behalf. Trust Jesus that his death was for you, that his resurrection was for you, that it can be made realized in your life through faith. Submit to King Jesus. If you would call yourself a believer, a follower of Christ in this room, submit to King Jesus, but do not fear. Do not fear. He has already overcome your two greatest enemies. What else would we fear? What else would we fear? He's with us to the very end of the age. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Christ is risen. You all are good. All right. So not only do we see victory of the risen king, we also see it actually creates a problem because when the angel says, he is not here, he is risen, and I said that's seven words that changed the course of history. It's actually as well seven words that changed your life, whether you know it or not. Those seven words change your life whether you know it or not because risen King Jesus creates a problem. He creates a problem for them and he creates a problem for us. And the way we're gonna see how this problem plays out, we're gonna actually look at, back at the text and see two different reactions to the risen King. We're gonna start with verse eight through 10 and look at the, the first reaction we see there. So the women hurried away from the tomb afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings. I just find that as a funny greeting. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So the first reaction to the risen Jesus is we see the women that they are first, they see the empty tomb and then they're filled with joy. It says that they were, they were afraid yet filled with joy. Just notice the emotions there. This is before they even see Jesus. They just see the empty tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. It's, it's, it's like, um, it's like, they, it's like when, I, when I approach the ocean in a way, 
Like, I love the ocean. I, I love the sand. If you've been here a couple weeks, you've already heard me say this. I love the sand under my feet. I love the, the sound of the waves. I love the smell of the water. I just love the ocean. And I, I have such awe and, and, and joy there. Uh, but don't drop me in the middle of it. Don't drop me in the middle of that. I will go from joyful and it will just be a reverent fear. It'd be a reverent fear. I mean, I don't know what's under my feet. Actually, I do know, and that's what scares me. And this is that idea. When you see fear, like, why would they be afraid? It's a reverent fear. It's like, I'm, I am standing before a holy God. I am, I am at the feet of my Savior who knows me by name and loves me. It's a reverent fear that's fueled by joy. Notice the way they respond to the risen Jesus. It's worship. It's worship. They clasp his feet. Notice they clasp his feet. You can't clasp the feet of a ghost. There's no body in the tomb. They clasp the feet of the resurrected body of Jesus Christ and they Worship, But that's not the only response we see. Verse 11 through 15 tells us of another response. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, <clears throat> we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. One response, worship. The other response, a cover-up. It's a cover-up. He literally says they devised a plan. They had to plot their own version. They had to plot their own version of events. And if you look at, if you read Matthew 27, it's just complete and utter silliness, actually. The whole reason the guards were there in the first place is because they were afraid because of what Jesus said about rising after three days, that the disciples might actually come and steal his body. So they post guards to keep him from being stolen, even though the disciples are scared out of their minds and they're not even coming close to the tomb. And then when he rises from the dead, they're like, hey, you know what we could do? We could say his body was stolen. It's absurd. It's completely absurd. But the reality is like, that's what happens when we refuse to acknowledge the truth of God in our lives. What we end up doing is just complete absurdity. It's absurdity. We plot our own version of we cover ourselves, we cover our shame, we go and sow fig leaves on ourselves to say maybe he won't notice. They devise a plan. They cover up their guilt. Two reactions, two options. The same for us today. Herein lies the problem. What do you do with a resurrected Jesus. What do you do with a resurrected Jesus? You, and you have to understand why this matters for us now, because a dead Jesus is not a problem. We can all think of influential leaders across the history of our world, good leaders, bad leaders. I mean, you can think of 
Um, Gandhi, you can think of even people in the Bible, King David, Solomon, influential people. You can think of Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, Muhammad, whoever you want to think of that have that influence for good or bad in our world. You can have your own opinion of them and I can have my own opinion of them, right? Like I can tell you I disagree with your opinion of something of someone in the history of the world. And the reality is like it's not going to be that big a deal. It's just not going to be that big a deal. We may not agree and you may not even like me that I don't agree, but it doesn't really have much relevance in our life in reality. And if Jesus is dead, it's the same thing. And the reality is that this is the way America, this is the way the world in general treats Jesus. They treat him as though he's dead. You'll hear things like, oh, I love that Jesus tells us, tells us to love others. I just love that teaching of Jesus. Well, I mean, as long as they're in my tribe and they kind of agree with all these things. I love to love other people. Um, it's so great. Don't come at me with all his talk about sexual ethics, though. Don't, don't come at me with his views on marriage. Don't come at me with that, but, but let's talk about his love. Oh, I love humanitarian Jesus. I love the fact that he cares for the poor he cares for the broken. He cares for the outcast. I'm for that. But that whole thing about taking up, his, taking up my cross and like self-denial, not for me. No, I, I like this part of Jesus. I don't like that part of Jesus. And the other side of the world and shame and honor cultures, they, they're fine with some self-denial. They're fine with a more pure ethic. They're not cool with forgiveness and grace typically and loving their enemies. If Jesus is dead, we can take and choose. We can pick and choose what we want about Jesus, what we like about what he teaches. But if Jesus is raised from the dead, that creates a problem. It creates a problem because if he's a risen king, he's worthy of worship. He's a king with all authority. And everything he said matters. Everything he said Matters. You and I don't have the luxury of kind of liking Jesus. We have two choices, brothers and sisters. We have two choices. And we see it in 28, 16 through 17. When the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. You have two choices with the resurrected Jesus. Two choices. You can worship and follow King Jesus. Or you can doubt and devise a plan. But that's all you got. There's no third way. There's no third choice. It's worship and follow and love King Jesus or doubt it ever happened and devise a plan. That's all you got. What do you do with a resurrected Jesus? Because he is, right? Christ is risen. I'm so impressed. Okay. So we have a victorious risen Jesus and we have a, a problem that he creates for them and for all of us. What do we do with a resurrected king? But if your choice there is to love, worship, and honor this king, you'll actually notice that there's a rhythm that this actually creates in the life of the kingdom. And so we're going to read 17 through 20, 
When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Here's the rhythm of the kingdom. Go and see, come and go, I mean, come and see, go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. We see it right here all throughout Matthew 28. We see it right here. It says they saw him. When they saw him, they worshiped him. They worshiped him. Some doubted, yes, most likely not any of the 11 disciples because you see in Luke 24 and, and 1 Corinthians 15, he appears to multitudes of people at different times. But if you worship him, what you'll see is you come and see and then you go and tell to all nations. Therefore, make disciples of all nations. Come and see, go and tell. You see it when the women show up at the tomb. Come and see where he lay. Then go and tell the brothers. Then they're on their way, they're running. You notice like they're, they're filled with joy and fear and they're running to tell the brothers and boom, Jesus shows up. What's up? Greetings. They see Jesus. Go and tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. They go. We see it all throughout. Come and see. Go and tell. Well, what does it mean to see? It's from the Greek word horao, which basically means three, it means to see. So understand that. Like it's translated to see, that's right. But there's three different ways it actually could mean to see. Could be to see with your eyes, like to visually see, to look at. It could mean to see with your mind, like actual, actually perceive or to know. Or it could be to be acquainted with by experience. To see with your eyes, to perceive with your mind, to know, or to be acquainted with by experience. Does it bother you that some people saw Jesus and doubted? Because we often think, like, if I was there, man, I'd have been totally, I'd love it. I mean, I believe in you, Jesus, if I could just see you. I trust you if I, could just, if I could just see you, like Thomas. Like, can I just put my finger in, in the holes in your hand? Then, I, then I'd believe. But yet you, you read the gospel narratives. There are people that see Jesus all the time and don't see Jesus. You see, the Pharisees all throughout his ministry were, were rebuking him. They didn't see Jesus. They thought he was doing these miracles by some other power. They... Even when he uses the Old Testament scripture to show them where they've missed the mark, they reject that. He's literally in physical form in front of people and they're doubting. And I'm not here to, to judge you if you have doubts. That's, that's important part of the faith is to sort that stuff out. But if that's where you land for good, then I don't know that you seeing him in person would have made a difference because it didn't seem to do that for them. The Bible talks about the ability to see Jesus and not see as basically spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. Jesus says things when he's teaching. He'll say things like, 
For he, for him or for her who has eyes to see, let them see. What is that? People didn't have eyes back then? No, they did. It's a spiritual blindness. He calls the religious leaders, you blind guides. You blind guides. They weren't literally blind. They could visually see Jesus. You blind guides. You, you blind leading the blind, falling into pits. There's a reality of spiritual blindness that the enemy wants to cover our eyes from actually seeing Jesus. My dad <clears throat> has two brothers and his, one of his brothers, 10, 15 years ago, I can't remember when it was, um, had a tumor uh, and I, be I believe it was either close to his optical nerve or on the optical nerve. And they went in to do operation and they really fully expected that they would be able to remove the tumor. Um, so he goes into surgery and they nick the optical nerve and he, he loses his sight. Probably 50, 51, something like that, years old. Loses his sight, he is blind. He's been blind since that day. Um, joyful man. He, my grandmother brought all three kids of hers up uh, in the Presbyterian Church in Branson, Missouri. Uh, he had seen Jesus with his eyes, but he was able to see and perceive Jesus in his mind. And it allowed him to go through this traumatic incident with such joy. I mean, I'm sure he's got really hard days where he's frustrated. But every time I'm ever around him, he's joyful, he's laughing, his demeanor is there because he's seen Jesus. My dad's other brother with glasses now has 20-20 vision. Grown up in, around the church, brother who's a pastor, doesn't see Jesus. And we love him. And we pray that he would see Jesus. Two of my uncles are blind, but in different ways. Come and see Jesus, because you can actually see Jesus and not see Jesus. And the call is to come and see. And this is a stumbling block in our culture. In Jonesboro, Arkansas, we are so inoculated with Jesus that it sometimes can be hard to actually see Jesus. There's churches on every single corner. Just studying for this, this sermon, I was in Shadrach's for a few hours and I saw like three different young people come in, open their Bible, grab a cup of coffee, because you, just in case you don't know, you learn more from the Bible with coffee, in case you did not know that. Come in with coffee, a notepad, write some notes down, shut the Bible, leave. God, man, praise God, there are people all over our town seeking Jesus, and that's a great thing. But I do think we need to understand that that a lot of times, I think we view living in this culture as though we've actually seen Jesus. And brothers and sisters, I love you enough 
I love you enough to tell you that if you think you've seen Jesus, but you don't worship him, it's possible you've never seen Jesus. I want you to understand that the gospel, the good news of Jesus coming to earth on our behalf, living the life we could never live, taking our place on the cross and rising from the grave, you don't get that by herd immunity. You don't get it by herd immunity. You don't become immune to the effects of sin and death by being around people who've become immune to the effects of sin and death. You personally need to see Jesus. Come and see. What does it mean to come and see? Well, two things I wanna bring out quickly. It means, first of all, to examine the resurrection. Like, just examine it. You know, a lot of times, speaking of blindness, people talk about the Christian faith as though you just, you know, you have faith blindly. And that's sometimes true if we're talking about the fact that we're trusting God in circumstances that we can't see him. But there's actual rational understanding of the resurrection that when you observe and examine what happened on Easter Sunday, it actually makes way more sense that it's real and true than any other explanation. And you can read books on this, so I'm not gonna take a bunch of time, but just to say this, the, you have the brother of Jesus, James, and James, the brother of Jesus, worships him as, as God. And Dan has said this before from this stage, and I've heard it elsewhere as well. What would it take for your sibling to believe you were God? What would it take for your sibling to be like, oh my gosh, He's not just Jesus, like punk Jesus, or like the one I pick on. He's God. What would it take? A resurrection? Good luck. One God. What, what would it take for the church to form the way it did at the beginning with predominantly monotheistic Jews that believed in one God and would not typically believe that God came in the form of a man? And yet, immediately, it explodes in Jerusalem. What would it take? A resurrected Jesus? When you examine the resurrection and then you look at the after effects and the aftermath of the resurrection, Jesus being raised from the dead, as crazy as that sounds, as the big of miracle as that is, it's the thing that makes the most logical and rational sense. You have to. You have two choices. You either can worship and see it and believe, or you can plot and devise a plan. Like something happened, so what are we gonna say happened? Because we can't say the king is alive. We can't say that. Look at it rationally, but what it also means to see Jesus is to look at him experientially. Like I said earlier, to see, to perceive in the mind, to be acquainted with by experience. How do you do that? Well, two things. You engage with him in prayer and you engage him in his word. This is how we know Jesus. We experience him by speaking to him in prayer, listening for him through his spirit and reading his words. We experience Jesus and then you get in a local church. It doesn't have to be here. If you're visiting, you know, great. If you're from another church, great. But wherever you're located, get in the local church and experience Jesus together with others who are seeing Jesus. Ask him to open your eyes, to see him. 
finishing up the natural rhythm of seeing Jesus is then to go and tell. And we see this in the gospel narratives. We see this in Acts. So you have Peter who's scared out of his mind to even own the fact that he knows Jesus on Good Friday. And then some few days later, after seeing the risen king, being restored by Jesus, being filled with the spirit, he goes to those same religious leaders he's scared of and is basically like, y'all killed Jesus. You need to do something about that. Where's the boldness come from? The resurrected Jesus. He came and saw and he went and told. We see it with John. We see it with him outside the temple in Acts 4. We see Mary Magdalene. She sees Jesus. She goes and tells the brothers about it. We see the church in Jerusalem exploding by sharing what they've seen in Jesus. We can't, I mean, they tell, they tell Peter and John, don't, you need, you need to quit talking about Jesus. And they're like, we can't, can't unforget, or we can't forget what we saw. Come and see, go and tell. And he shows up even to Paul. Paul, persecuting the church, murdering Christians, thinks he's doing God's will until Jesus is like, why are you persecuting me? He saw and he became the most prolific missionary to Gentiles the world has ever seen. Come and see, go and tell. So how can you go and tell? Well, there's lots of ways. But one way I think in particular that actually would be a very radical thing is hospitality. Uh, a pastor that uh, I listened to a lot, he, he said this. Um, he said, this was like a year ago, but it stuck with me. He said, in America, we have tall privacy fences and small dining room tables. As Matt Chandler said that. Small privacy, or tall privacy fences, small living room, kitchen dining room tables, getting at the idea that we actually have in our culture something that's actually pushing against us to be hospitable. We want to come in our garage, shut the door, small tables just for us and our family. What if we practice radical hospitality? What What if we had people coming into our homes, our neighbors, that we could Go and tell for them to come and see Jesus. What if you did that at work? What if you did that at school? What if you leveraged just the regular rhythms and events of your life, kids, sports teams, Easter egg hunts? And then what if we did it internationally? You may not be called to move internationally, but many of you know we have brother and sister and their family halfway around the world right now who felt the call that after they had come and seen to go and tell people that have never heard. They're part of, in my view, Zechariah 9, when we talked about last week, the prophecy that Jesus, that the rule of the king will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Brothers and sisters, would you come and see the risen king? Because when you do, the, here's the fruit of that when you do. You'll have reverent fear filled with joy. Reverent fear filled with joy. You'll have worship. 
And I don't know if you understand completely that what you see is transformative in your life. I remember uh, back when um, Facebook, not the Facebook, just so you guys know, it's just Facebook. Um, I remember back when Facebook was like kind of the predominant social media. And the reason I remember is because I get these goofy memories every now and then that'll be like those status updates. And it would be like Nathan McCallum is blank. And so like I would feel the need to fill it in like picking up where it left off. So the status update's like Nathan McCallum is hungry for a donut, you know, or some, some goofy thing. And so it'll, it'll pop up like, do you want to share this memory? I'm like, no, gosh, no, please, God, forgive me. But notice like now, what, what has become kind of the predominant social media? It's all images. It's TikTok, it's videos, it's Instagram. We are drawn to what we see. And what we see actually transforms and shapes us. That's why it can be so dangerous. What, you know, with that old song you remember as a kid, be careful little eyes what you see. Because what we see transforms us. And a lot of times, if we continually look at the same thing, it becomes what we worship. Come and see Jesus, the risen King, the victorious King. My call to action to you today is what will you do with the risen King? What will you do with the risen King? You got two choices. You can worship and follow him or you can doubt and devise a plan. But that's all you got. Come see Jesus. Because one day, we're all gonna see Jesus. And he's not gonna be coming in on a donkey. Revelation 19 says he's coming on a white horse with a robe that says King of kings, Lord of lords. And in that moment and at that time, when he sees it's time to do that, when he deems fit to come, if you are in Jesus, if you've repented of your sins, if you've trusted him for salvation, for life, for joy, this is what Paul would say at the end of Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15. This is what will happen for those in, in the kingdom at the time. It says, when the perishable has been clothed with imperishable. This is talking about our bodies. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the life you want. This is the life I want. It's the life we all want. A life that isn't in vain. A life that's not wasted. A life that matters. And you can have that life and leverage that life for the risen King and it will never be wasted. Brothers and sisters, if that's you today, if you are a follower of Christ, let me encourage you, stand firm. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Don't be afraid. Take your fears to Jesus. Don't don't hear me shaming you for being afraid. It's just say, don't be afraid. Look, he's got you. Let nothing move you. Give yourselves fully to the Lord and be filled with joy. Why? Because Christ is risen. Amen. Hallelujah. Our Father, let us see Let us see the risen King with fresh eyes today. Would you overwhelm us with joy? Matthew says not that they had joy, that they were filled with joy. Would you overwhelm us with joy? When we see the risen King, it's natural for us to fear Help us to hear your voice saying, do not be afraid, my child. And let us see the great love with which you've loved us. Remind us, Lord, that you love the world in this way, that you gave your only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Jesus, remove any distractions from our life any sin we stumble over, any false narrative the enemy wants us to believe, let us see you, be changed by you, hope in you, and get to work in the world for the glory of your name to the ends of the earth for our deepest joy and satisfaction. King Jesus, you are worthy and you are with us forever and you have all authority. Give us confidence that you will keep us until the end. It's in your name we pray. Amen.